We are going to start our series, although we will, as Parker mentioned, interrupt it next week, but this will be the series for the fall called Foretold. And what we will be doing uh, is the same program that all of the church will be going through. We're going to look at the major prophets, and as you can see on the screen there, Daniel, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. And we're going to, in a sense, see what it tells us about the coming Messiah. So turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 1. And what I think we're going to see here is a very powerful opportunity to look at the Messiah who claims cleanses the sin. And as you look at this, as you see in your handout, I might just mention for those of you that are visitors on the handout, at the very bottom there, you'll see PrestonwoodExamine.org. This presentation in PDF form is already on the website, and so that's available to you as well. And as you look at the handout, one of the kind of the themes we have is our sin demands punishment, and only in grace through the Messiah do we find peace. And the theme that sort of runs through this is similar to a commentary I wrote, which will air this week, in which I point out that sometimes if you're engaged in a political discussion with somebody and they say something about the criminal justice system or about deterrence, you go, they don't really have, I think, a proper view of human nature. Or maybe you've been out witnessing and you're sharing the gospel and they just got the sense, well, I don't really need a savior because I'm not a sinner. And I use the example that Dennis Prager used when he was in University of California at Berkeley, was in this kind of debate discussion with a number of liberal students. At one point, he asked the question, well, do you believe that man is basically good? And they all, without a doubt, said, oh, yes, we believe human beings are basically good. And he said, you know, you can have that view because you live in one of the greatest countries in the world. You're so separated from the evidence of what it is like when sin becomes institutionalized. Now, you live in a world where, you know, yes, you complain every once about corruption, but it's nothing like what it's like in the third world where corruption and greed just dominate the world. We occasionally have had a terrorist attack, but nothing what it's like to live where civil war and strife is taking place. And there is a sense in which uh, we, even today, need to remind ourselves of human sinfulness. So today we're going to spend some time looking at that in the book of Isaiah. Uh, This is one of the kind of the prophetic versions that we have here. And it's the idea that here, as Isaiah is speaking to Judah, to Israel, uh, he's talking about how they're sinful and rebellious, worthy of punishment, really unable to rescue themselves. And even their best efforts to actually fulfill the law. What a perfect uh, corollary to what Jarrett was preaching about today when we talk about the Good Samaritan uh, because their hearts are far away. But even in the midst of this judgmental message in uh, Isaiah chapter 1, and we'll look at part of chapter 2, we also see that we have a good and gracious God. So let's, if we can, just look at it real quickly. I won't read all of the passage, but let's begin in Isaiah 1, where it says, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, who, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought you up, that they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. But is Isaiah and Israel um, does not know my people and do not understand. A sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Let's jump ahead to verse 14, where he's now talking about the fact that they have offered all of these uh, various rituals. But he says in verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Now, probably the most famous passage in the chapter. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Pretty strong words, but it's just a reminder again of our sin nature and probably a reminder that you run into people lots of times that say, well, I think people are basically good or I think I'm okay. Everything is fine in my own life. But I think it's recognizing again that as we look at even the nation of Israel and in particular Judah, we see that truly facing our own sin as they face their own sin there in Judah uh, is a shock because so, so often we really don't appreciate how serious we fall short of God's holy demands and sometimes we feel as though we're doing so well then God shows us in one way or another that we have fallen short and here in Isaiah 1 he gives in a sense these people a wake-up call using very strong words and strong imagery just really trying to help them understand the magnitude of their sin. So let's look at uh, some of the examples that are used. First of all, he begins by calling the heavens and earth to bear witness to just what has been taking place here in Judah. They rejected, he says, the Holy One of Israel and all creation, in a sense, is a witness to Judah's rebellion. And now he begins to use some illustrations about the farm animals. Uh, We can see those, for example, in which they understand where they get life and protection, but the people aren't even as smart as the farm animals who don't understand that. And so now he begins to talk in verse 4 here about a sinful nation that bears the burden of sin because their rebellion wasn't just one family or one generation or one tribe, but it was the entire gathering of individuals. And so you see sin going from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And as a result, we can see that this has begun to affect the nation in a very dramatic way. 
Then he picks up on some of these ideas here, talking about the fact that uh, Judah has forsaken, or another translation, despised the Holy One of Israel. Then in verses 5 to 6, we see Judah as a person who's been beaten or badly injured, but doesn't have the sense to seek any help. Again, I didn't know we were going to be talking about the uh, individual that was beaten and then ministered to by the Good Samaritan. But you can think about an individual who was beaten, but then in this case doesn't seek help. We've always said that that's sometimes a problem with some of us men, you know. Oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. You know, finally, you know, we're being wheeled away in one of those ambulances we just saw out there a minute ago because we just simply won't seek help. And the illustration here is Israel is hurting, it's beaten down, it's injured, but it isn't smart enough even to seek help. Then you can go down to verse 7 here. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, is overthrown by foreigners. It talks about, again, that they were supposed to be in the promised land. They were supposed to be secure. They were supposed to be safe. But now that's not what is happening. They've begun to see um, the falling apart of everything around them. Verse 8 then talks about the fact that Judah is like a booth or a lodge or a besieged city. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I go, what does that mean? Well, again, look at verse 8. A booth in a vineyard, sometimes when there were individuals or, in other cases, animals coming into either a crop, like a vineyard, or to sheep, they would build kind of a temporary building. So we're talking about, you know, just a really small structure. A little more than a tent, but that's all it is. It's not a house. It's not secure. So when he talks about a a booth, it's one of those kind of workmen, watchmen kind of shelters. It's kind of makeshift. Was just there to make sure that animals weren't eating the grapes, or some foreign invader wasn't sneaking in at night to steal the grapes, or some wolf or some other animal was going to take the sheep. And so it's really, in a sense, you're not secure anymore. You're not safe. It's not like you're behind at night when you lock the door to your house and you are secure. Actually, you are very vulnerable. And then he uses a different illustration. He talks about a booth, a lodge, then a besieged city. And so. You, Judah is like a besieged city, surrounded by enemies, totally overwhelmed. And so he's using these kind of illustrations to talk about how dire their circumstances are. Yet I bet if you were to travel the streets of Judah, a lot of people say, I think we're doing pretty well. You know how you run into people all the time. I think I'm better than most people. You know, I think God grades on the curve. I think everything's fine. You know, I, I think we'll be okay. I think the nation's doing fine. And, of course, he's trying to help them understand how dire the circumstances really are. Now, if that's not enough, he's already talked about them being besieged. He talked about the difficulties. It's a sinful nation. Uh, It's surrounded. It's like a booth. It's like a lodge. Then he actually sticks the knife in even further. Because if there's one thing you would never want your nation to be compared to, it would be what? Sodom and Gomorrah. And so at this point now, he even calls them Sodom and Gomorrah in verses 9 and 10. And really, in a sense, the idea is, you look, always, you could always say, no matter how bad Judah gets, no matter how Israel gets, there's always Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You ever run into people say, well, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm not as bad as the people in prison. You ever run into that when you, you know, that's kind of the same kind of, and that's kind of their fallback, you know. Oh, well, at least we're not Sodom and Gomorrah. And he actually refers to them as Sodom and Gomorrah because by neglecting the heart of God's promises, they've now corrupted temple worship. They go about the rituals. They're still actually in the temple. They're still offering sacrifices, but in many cases, this is something that now God refers to as really almost an abomination. Your uh, moons, new moons, and appointed feasts have become a burden to me. So at this point, Isaiah makes a really shocking claim if you think about it. He says, you know, you might as well just quit offering sacrifices. Because it doesn't mean anything. You might as well stop going about the religious facade, pretending that you really have a heart for God. You might as well quit observing these Sabbath days because you're just pretending your heart really isn't right with God. And, of course, you might ask the question, well, how could God want this? Well, it's what he was simply trying to point out is is that the priests might have offered up sacrifices, but God's not offered, you know, really touched by those practices. And so even if the people offer up prayers to them, what does it say? God would not answer them. Powerful, powerful indictment indeed. So at this point, then, we get to some of the more famous passages in this section, verses 16 and 20, but in spite of all this strong talk and all this clear judgment, God still offers hints of grace in the midst of it because we see here, come now let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Today when we had people come forward, what were we singing at one point? Your sins ran red, you know, your blood ran red, but your we our sins became white. This is the same kind of idea here as well. Judah is now talking about the fact that we need to be committed to God's ways. And we need to recognize that God has a solution for sinful rebellion. We need to seek protection and shelter by promoting what is good. And notice what it says here. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Learn to do good. Think about that. In a culture where the values are completely inverted, where the bad guys are in power and the good guys sometimes are going to jail, where evil is in the land, you have to teach the next generation to what? Learn to do good. And so at this point, they need to seek cleansing from God alone, and they need to get away from these empty observance of rituals and really begin to change their heart. Again, fits very well with the theme that we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks, not only in church, and that is revival. We say, Lord, let's bring a revival in America. Where does revival start? First in our own human hearts. And so that's, again, the emphasis here. True worship, as I point on the screen here, revolutionizes both the individual and the community experiencing God's cleansing and the community practices a way of life marked by what we heard about today, mercy, joy, and peace. That's how we end up bringing about a social change that is going to be significant. Let's finish uh, the rest of the chapter here. In verse 21, we read, How the faithful city has become a whore. That's pretty 
pretty powerful. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired. And you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tender, his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. And again, just an incredibly powerful judgment. But even in the midst of our best intentions, a reminder that we fall short of God's holy demands. And so first of all, just a reminder again of the fact that this was once a place where faithfulness and righteousness did reign. A reminder that they were once faithful to God alone. But now even the city itself has become rebellious. Wickedness and rebellion kind of overflow. And Isaiah points to Jerusalem becoming, if you will, the intimate connection between God's city and God's people. So let's, if we can, then look at what he talks about here. Because so as Jerusalem goes, so the people are. And so he identifies the people with the city. And he uses this illustration then of you become what? A whore, become a prostitute, a people that have rejected God just as a woman rejects her husband, cares for, and lo- who loves her. And so again, he laments uh, the impurity of Judah at that point. When Judah then is used as an illustration, he talks about uh, what happens in a smelter. Because he says, you know, you should be pure like silver, but you are in a sense like one that has been mixed with other kinds of metals. You know, the way in which you get gold or silver is you heat it up so that all the dross is removed and it's silvery it's gold shining or you can see your face in the shine because it is so pure so then he moves from the idea of a smelter to the idea of wine this is like individuals that have pure wine but it's been watered down um, in order to um, make them in many cases acceptable to a culture that has turned its back on God and actually watered down their covenant prompt practices then Judah should have had leaders defined by justice you should have justice in the land you should have those that are standing for righteousness those are standing for purity but instead they become thieves open to follow the whims of the highest bidder corruption is in the land people are getting paid off and justice that was supposed to take place is no longer taking place 
Then in the end, those facing challenging circumstances, they're the most vulnerable. Who are those? The widows and the orphans. It's oftentimes been said that you can judge the value of a country by how it treats its most innocent individuals. You can talk about widows and orphans, or as we talked about today, this March for Life. How do we treat the unborn? And here, they're trampled upon when powerful people lose their sense of God. And so we can see that evil is in the land, corruption is in the land, injustice is in the land, and as a result, social injustice is ultimately the result of a refusal to entrust yourself completely to a fair and loving God. And so the weak and the marginalized are kind of the border society, and they're the ones that pay the greatest price for those who are powerful and grabbing power. So in the face of all of that, Isaiah reveals God's plan for purging and cleansing the people. He already sort of tips his hand when he talks about silver and dross because now he begins to say there's going to be a time in which there's going to be a purging and a cleansing of the people. He offers this truth that both concern and comfort because of Jerusalem's wickedness, judgment is now going to come. And we'll see more of this in the next couple of weeks. And ultimately, a sovereign God will guard his name among the nations by really trying to purify Judah from its wickedness. And so again, this image of the blacksmith burning away the impurities. Sometimes when we go through the refiner's fire, it isn't pleasant, but what comes out on the other side is what God intends for there to be. And even in the midst of this, if you will, proclamation of judgment, we also see that there is hope. They're not totally consumed. Hopefully they'll be returned to a better state of dependence, not surrounded by... Uh, gods that are false, not surrounded by immorality and unrighteousness and injustice, ultimately ones that uh, God can endorse. And instead, Jerusalem once again, look at verse 26, will be called what? A city of righteousness, a faithful city. And God will restore his righteousness in Jerusalem through his faithful determination to preserve, to redeem, and even forgive his people. And just as he points to this idea of judgment, much like, as we'll see in just a few weeks, Jeremiah's offer that you have a way of life or you have a way of death. And here it says we have a way of righteousness or a way of sin that leads to death. And by repenting of sin and looking to God's righteousness, a person finds newness of life. Looking to God's offer to repent and believe draws a person into this right relationship and fellowship with him. In contrast, persisting in sin and looking away from God results in brokenness and total separation. This person cannot avoid this fate, so it talks about in verses 30 and 31, the strong cannot resist God's plan. A life lived in abundance here and now is like a garden that's been cut off from water. We know what that looks like, although lately you haven't seen too much without water. Uh, And then as a result we are to heed Isaiah's vision, accept God's path for accomplishing God's purposes. So finally, just for another few minutes, let's look at chapter 2 because now this also is the final statement 
of hope. Verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Again, another famous passage there in chapter 2. But a reminder here as well of this promise of what this future uh, time of Israel will look like. Because in chapter 1, we're looking at the vision of where is Israel right now. Chapter 2, we're looking ahead to this future Jerusalem, this future Israel that will take place. And so as a result, we can see the tension between the current circumstances and the future promises for Judah, a distinctly future-directed message, which of course have implications even for us today. God's people today live in God's promises fulfilled yesterday and God's promises guaranteed for tomorrow. But in this light, Isaiah 2 represents, I think, if nothing else, a picture of what like will be like in the future, in this coming millennial kingdom, in which God rules over his people. And no longer do we have sin and death and decay and injustice and unrighteousness. And here, the prophet uses these images of the mountain. Of course, we talked about Jared Stevens' new book about uh, Come to the Mountain, the temple, the word of God, and the judge, all looking for that future promise of the Messiah that would come. One day God will finally reveal his grandeur and majesty to the whole world as a mountain rising up in powerful authority above all the other hills. So God's rule will be established over the other worldly systems, over all the world's religions, over all of governments, and we will no longer have to deal with the constant problems that we face every single day. In fact, all the nations, not just Israel, will stream into God's presence, it talks about here. And the uh, capital of the world will actually be in Jerusalem. Verse 3 describes the people of the world entering into God's presence, searching for ways to obey his commands faithfully. And the whole world will look to God for righteousness, seek his wisdom in matters of life. And God's wisdom is sufficient not only for matters of Christian life and witness, but also for guidance of the things of the world and even for the disputes that we face right now with all of those different nations. So in the end, we see God's peace will rule over all of the earth, causing every nation to be marked by unity and peace. And I love the illustration here. Swords and spears will instead become what? Plowshares. And uh, others will become pruning hooks. And so no longer will we have war. No longer will people study war. We will finally have peace come to the earth. And human existence will be unified around a shared life marked not by strife, not by greed, 
mind, not by ambition, not by covetousness, but by joy and by generosity. And finally, in verse 5, it invites people to walk in the light as he is the light, to live in fellowship and unity, and the peace promised by Isaiah, fulfilled by Christ. I put down a key verse there in Colossians 3, and God's righteousness and wisdom will one day draw all nations to God's mountains in worship and praise, and then we'll be able to proclaim this to every nation, tongue, tribe, right there in Jerusalem. So if you look at your handout, I wanted to uh, suggest a couple of challenges that these verses give to us. Three very quickly. The first challenge is that as we look back in chapter 1, we see that Isaiah, uh, using again these imagery, is a reminder of our sin. And he uses lots of examples of illustrating this, like a person beaten down, like a nation that is living in a booth or a lodge or a besieged city. And it's a reminder that, if nothing else, we can see how there is sin in Judah. And so it's easy for us to kind of stand back and feel in judgment about what has happened in in Judah's sin. But the question we want to ask ourselves is, are we equally aware of our own sin? Isaiah puts this, God uses Isaiah to remind those individuals who sort of looked around and thought that this was business as usual. They probably didn't see the sin in Judah until they read these words. And sometimes it's easy for us to just go through life and be oblivious to our own sin. Are you trying to make yourself clean or do you look to God for grace and forgiveness? Are you sort of pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps or are you dependent upon God to bring about a change in your life? Because one of the things i found is when you begin to sense your own sin and look to Christ to offer new life and peace because you recognize that I can't do it by myself. And if there's a theme that comes through chapter 1, it's that they thought that they could solve all of their problems by themselves and they were no longer dependent upon the Lord. They were really just dependent upon their religious experiences, their various uh, Sabbath observances, their various feasts, and the work of the priests in the temple. But we do not need to continue in our sin. We need to live in righteousness through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so, first of all, I see in Isaiah 1 a need for us to look at how Judah had to repent of their sin and likewise how I believe we need to repent of our sin. The second thing that I see, the second R, if you will, is number one, to repent of our sins. Number two, to reject idols. Now, again, the idolatry in Judah seems kind of distant, if you think about it, disconnected. I'm sure I could come into anybody's home, and I probably wouldn't see any idols on the mantle there in front of the fireplace, right? We recognize that. Although, if you've traveled to other countries, you certainly see those as well. So, we may not suffer the temptation to seek protection from surrounding nations by having idols or those kinds of things. But how often do we sometimes run to wealth, uh, to relationships? Uh, to power, to success as our idol in order to have protection and peace. And so I think there's a second thing that we can see that just as we look at Judah and they were dependent upon their idols, we need to make sure that we reject idols in our own lives. Look to God alone to give your life meaning, accept identity not in power or in comfort, but in Christ alone. You know, there have been all sorts of people over the years that say, what 
to people need, you know, and you got Abraham Maslow's, all the various kinds of things that people need in terms of food and shelter and everything else. Uh, but I think we have come back to a recognition that what people need the most is meaning for their lives. And we're going to find that meaning in Jesus Christ. And certainly, again, we should, uh, number one, as we mentioned just a minute ago, repent of sin. Number two, reject idols. And number three, rest in God's promises. You know, the picture here in Isaiah chapter 2 is a life that is fulfilled with peace. It's looking forward to a time in which we will have the millennial kingdom at a time when Christ rules once again, where God is on his throne and where all the problems that we read about and all the problems we see in our television program end. But I think we can also recognize that even in the midst of the strife that is surrounding us right now, we can have peace. If you come into our bathroom in our house right now, Suzanne has this one little uh, thing that stands up there and it says, you know, peace does not come in the absence of struggles and strife and difficulties. Peace comes from actually having peace in the midst of all of those activities. And this is the same kind of idea here. The peace of Isaiah 2 really is that we find our peace in Jesus Christ. You don't have to wait to feel his peace and joy flowing through your life when life seems confusing, when you seem downtrodden when things don't make sense. Call out to God in prayer and seek his wisdom in scriptures. And if nothing else, one of the things that I can see in Isaiah chapter 2 is the need for us to rest upon his promises as we take those into our own lives. So again, this is a series we're going to be going through in the next couple of weeks. We're going to be looking at Isaiah. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah. We'll be looking at Daniel. We'll be looking at Ezekiel. But each time we're going to look at some of these major prophets in an effort to try to see how we can learn some of the lessons in the Old Testament and apply it to our lives here in the New Testament age as believers in Jesus Christ. Parker?